From Western Sound and ACAST Studios, this is The Score, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and I'm back with another bonus episode. Last time we heard a really great interview with Piper Kerman about how Joe Loya was actually quite instrumental in her writing her book, Orange is the New Black, which, of course, went on to become a really big hit Netflix TV show. Today, I want to play for you the full interview we did with Richard Rodriguez. Richard appeared in the main narrative of the show a few times. He was really instrumental in Joe's development as a writer when they started corresponding while Joe was in prison. Richard, at that time, had written two books that he had become quite famous for. One was called Hunger of Memory. Another was called Days of Obligation. At the time, he was doing a series of really wonderful video essays for PBS NewsHour. Joe saw them on TV and decided one day to write Richard a letter. And that began a very unique and very vital correspondence. Talking with Richard was really just such a pleasure. He said so many interesting things, not just about Joe, but about writing and story. I thought I'd play for you guys a much longer version of the interview. Not quite the full version, but um, almost. We edited it a little bit for length and clarity. Hopefully you'll get as much out of this as, as I did. I think you're really going to like it. Joe was raised, I think, in an evangelical Protestant uh, household. And yes. um, uh, although he is very proud of his atheism and his, uh, his great hero when I knew him was Christopher Hitchens, who was ultimately uh, encouraging America into the war in Iraq and uh, telling us uh, Americans that there is no God. Um, nonetheless, Joe retains a certain kind of uh, narrative energy from his uh, uh, fundamentalist Protestant days that he got from his father. And one of them, I think, one, one strain of that thinking is that he had a conversion and that uh, some of us were like uh, uh, crucial uh, to that. We were like missionaries along the, the roadway and we converted Joe from the, his wrong ways to his righteous ways. I, I don't think, at least from my part of the story, I was not one of those missionaries. The, the man who wrote me a letter um, years ago in prison uh, was, was a man who already was pretty focused on the future he wanted, and he was in, determined to get out. And in part, his relationship to a writer, to somebody that he saw on television, it turned out that PBS was one of the few stations allowed in his, his jail. Uh, so between Julia Child and Sesame Street and me, uh, there I, I won the contest, and Joe wanted some kind of correspondence. At first, I, I, I sort of shrugged him off. I'm, I'm a, a gay man and not interested particularly in men behind bars. And I think in one of the first letters I sent him in response, I told him that I just didn't want to get into the sexual intrigue uh, of his imagination, of my imagination. Uh, so the letters became quite early his seduction of me, not sexual, but but uh, topical, I think. Uh, we, we were exploring areas that I had never gone to before. The, the, the literary areas were easy enough, um, Russian novels that he'd read, uh, Irish literature that he loved, uh, Irish music that he loved. Um, but the things that he told me were so fresh and so odd that I was, of course, seduced. And uh, I think in that process, Joe realized his power 
over a listener, another writer, um, was was substantial. He he, told, he tells me, for example, quite early that that about the stench of money. That one night after he robbed a number of banks, he he had these huge leather satchels under his bed, and he tried to get to sleep. And about five minutes after he he was on his bed, he begins to smell money, the the, the stench of it. Um, I had never I never I didn't know that. I've read lots and lots of novels, and no one has ever described the stench of money. How he had to take the bags out of his bedroom in order to sleep. The 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 the, the scent was so overpowering. That sort of thing. It played on my imagination, obviously. Um, but I I just wanted I want to be clear that Joe Lawyer was already intent on his journey, and that I was a participant in that journey. But I I didn't direct him in any way. Um, it it started earlier. I'm not even sure that the man I corresponded to was a bank robber. Um, he already, I mean, the, the sort of life that you'd expect a bank robber to have, um, you know, the an apartment that looks like Donald Trump's Fifth Avenue apartment. Um, Joe just wasn't interested. In fact, he gave a lot of money away to girlfriends who drove off in BMWs. Um, and uh, there was there was never in our correspondence any indication of money that he hid that he hid away or that the, the allure of money was never part of the correspondence. So in some way, I I don't I still don't understand why he was a bank robber, except that a number of, of women that he knew uh, benefited from it. How how would you describe your correspondence then? It was a it 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 became an, an intense. A letter from the 19th century. Uh, I would receive it. I've studied a great deal of correspondence from earlier centuries, and especially now in the age of email, where the correspondence between us is so minimal, uh, abbreviated, um, even with this with these spellings that are barely words. Um, and then suddenly there was this letter. These letters, usually on Tuesdays, of about. 12 to 15 pages, handwritten, with this very, very tiny script. Um, and it was as though he used the occasion of these letters to concentrate his energies away from the noise of the prison, away from the fact that he was in prison, um, even uh, in, in some cases that he was in solitary. Um, that That tiny script rarely was a word crossed out because I think what he did when he made a mistake is that he wrote the whole page over again. He had no he had no typewriter, uh, no no access to a computer. So it was this painstaking um, uh, script that he sent me every week. It was like getting a letter from a, from a gold miner in California in the 1850s. It was like getting a, mem- a letter from a missionary in, in, in China in the 19th century. It was like getting... A letter from um, in in America, you know, the, when when people left New Jersey or Ohio and went west, and they wrote to each other infrequently because of the the, the difficulty of, of communication. That those letters were so intense, and so considerate, and so well written, uh, because they were written uh, with the, with with the sense that at last my reader is is reading my words, despite all. And I think that's 
that was really quite extraordinary to, to get those letters. I saved them. I saved all of his letters, and I, I, I eventually gave them back to him after he got out of prison. And when Stanford University uh, recently bought my papers, I suggested to him that um, that he send me back to pay the letters, and I would put them in the archive, um, in my archives at Stanford. Uh, but by that time, Joe had gotten rid of them, partly, I think, as an exorcism. Um, when he ended the correspondence, that is, when he got out of prison, I think I got one long letter, and then we descended into the world of email. Hmm. Hmm. What did you get out of the correspondence? It was um, it was so original. His thinking is so original. When I when I um, when I he I didn't want to see him. I tell him I didn't need to see him. I didn't. I don't want to meet this guy with tattoos on his eyes and all the rest of it. And I said, you know, I'm I'm happy the correspondence was of use to you, and it was to me uh, during a period in which my father was dying which he was describing to me his own difficult relationship to his father, how one night his father almost killed his brother and so forth. Um, I, I, hadn't a real, I, do, I didn't have a literary relationship like that before. I've had some extraordinary correspondences over the years from Supreme Court justices, from wonderful editors, from famous people, but they're not, they're not letters that get exchanged over three years of this kind of density. Um, where he would tell me th- things about fear and violence and and concentration that were really quite original. I remember once when he was out of prison, he was on, being interviewed by a woman on CBS News, and he was always so contrarian in his in his in his uh, in his experiences. She describes rather naively the way I would. She she said. Uh, Tell me what it's like when you're driving toward a bank that you know that you're going to rob. What is that like? What does it feel like to drive down Wilshire Boulevard and to know that there's a bank as you get toward Santa Monica that you are going to walk into and that you're going to rob? What does that feel like, she said. Well, he said, you know what it feels like? He said, usually what happened before I got to Santa Monica, I would pull off to the side of the road and I would fall asleep. Um, (laughs) That the fear was so intense that it puts you to sleep. That Now, that's really quite nice. Uh, <laughs> you either like that or you don't. And I, re- <laughs> I rather enjoyed it. It was just so strange. I've, I've lived on, on some of Joe Loria's stories now for years. Whenever I'm at teaching, at a, I'm, I'm visiting a, a college or university, and the undergraduates are bored or held that, that, that I have to, that they have to sit through 50 minutes of me. Um, and the guys especially are tinkering with their... Uh, their little machines in the back and watching Dancing Naked Ladies or whatever they're watching. Um, I tell them the Joe Loy story that really was, for me, the, the, great, the great justification for learning proper English. Joe went to an evangelical uh, or some kind of Protestant school in Orange County, and it was there that he became, uh, he became in his prose and in his voice, able to impersonate a surfer boy in Huntington Beach, at will. He could turn his voice from East L.A. to Huntington Beach. Well, one day he robs three banks in San San Diego. Why three banks? Why one day? I don't know. But uh, he's in a BMW, of course, his his car of choice, and the car breaks down. um, And he's on the side of the San Diego freeway, and um, 
the, the, all this money is in the, in the trunk of the car. Highway patrolman comes behind him, and the patrolman, a young guy, says, what's the trouble? And, and Joe says, in his Huntington Beach voice, uh, would you believe it? My Beamer has just has just died. Could you could you give me a, a ride to a gas station? And so they go off to the next exit. And Joe is sitting in the back seat of this highway patrol car, and he says, "You know, I've been sitting along the freeway, and I've seen this row and row of highway patrolmen going by. Uh, what's going on?" And the highway patrolman says, "You know, there's some." There have been some bank robberies in, in San Diego, and there's a dragnet around, around the city right now. That guy had no idea that the bank robber was in the back seat of his car because Joe did not sound like a bank robber. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? And I tell, I tell the board uh, undergraduates at the University of Houston, attend to grammar, attend to your diction. It may get you released from prison earlier than you expect, you know. Um, being able to to sound like a boy from Huntington Beach rather than a boy from uh, East L.A. may may save your life. And sometimes one boy might look up from his cell phone and and consider it. That's what that kind of story is is a story I took from our correspondence just because it was it's so it's so rich and so interesting. You mentioned that Joe Joe would say some things about uh, fear. You said about family. Uh, you you just uh, mentioned language. Are there other sort of quintessential things that you learned from corresponding with Joe? Well, I learned that I'm not a, I'm not a criminal, um, and I learned that I I have a re- uh, I remember when he was just about to be released, I gave him an idea for a piece that would have been spectacular if he had been able to write it. I said, why don't you spend the last day or two of your imprisonment uh, writing a letter to the man who is going to occupy your cell? Uh, the things that you learned, the frustrations you felt, the way you survived, and so forth. Well, Joe couldn't write that piece and because he didn't see himself in that world. His, his, um, his literary sophistication his diction, his his ambition to be a writer, all those had already taken him out of prison. They were not. He didn't. He didn't see himself in the other guys' lives, uh, and so the idea of writing a letter to a loser who ends up in his cell was so contrarian to to the to his haughty sense of himself. I say that with 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 you know, not intending to to embarrass him, but there was that haughtiness in him. He did not see himself as the equal of those men. He was better. He and this is what I'm saying. He'd already he'd already somehow in his own mind, maybe before he before he got to prison, he'd already uh, transcended prison. He was not another loser in uh, in in solitary. He was writing a letter to another writer. Do you have other um, moments from your correspondence or things that uh, that you guys? Uh, wrote to each other about. Do you have other things that you that you tell your students about, or that uh, that you tell other people about? I don't. I I do, and I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't teach, and so I I haven't rehearsed my Joe Loyal repertoire for some time. Um, Joe would hear of these stories, um, um, and in fact, just the other day, 
at the uh, at a university in Loyola, at Loyola University in Chicago, I was telling a Joe Loyola story to the audience, and um, they're amused. When I get back to my hotel across the street, there is an email from Joe Loya saying that he heard that I quoted him in, at, at a conference in Chicago. This is 45 minutes after the conference because somebody in the audience, one of his acolytes, one of his little friends, that he's, it's like an army of us out here. We've met Joe. We know Joe. He's our bank robber. And this guy who teaches at Notre Dame, I have no idea who that guy was, has reported to Joe that I've told a story, which was partly respectful, but partly not, he said to Joe. And Joe was in mag man magnanimous mood. He said it was okay. In fact, Joe, what I said to the audience was, Joe would, would want me to tell you this story because he's been in the business of self-advertising now, self now for the last 15, 20 years. Um, that is his business, to... to to engage the world in our Joe Lawyer communication. Well, I mean, that's that's a kind of, that's the way Joe Lawyer moves into the into various parts of my life. I'm sure he's going to be listening to this conversation, and I will hear from him the way I always hear from him. But by and large, what happened, I guess, and more interesting or equally interesting with the fact of our correspondence for those three years was the fact that it died as it did. And that was, it, what it taught me was that there was something in the, in the uh, anonymity of that relationship, the fact that I did not expect ever to meet him, in the freedom he had to tell me things behind bars, um, in, 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 in our, our being strangers to each other. I wrote in my first book, Hunger and Memory, that there are some things you, so personal you can only tell them to a stranger. As I was a stranger to him, we were able to talk about a great many things. Um, when he got out of prison and he insisted that I go visit him at his brother's house in, in um, Southern California, he put on a three or four hour performance in his brother's living room. His brother had gone to work. And um, it was, I don't remember what stories he told me, but they were really finely woven stories. And I realized as I was sitting on the sofa listening to this man is that he was a performer, a theatrical, and that his energies as a writer were that he could organize a narrative in interesting ways with beginning, middle, and end. And that was no small achievement, I thought. I don't know where he got that, maybe, if, again, from, from his biblical literature. But, but there, was a, there, was, there were finely formed narratives. Um, and then I leave him. I remember my partner and I got invited to his anniversary. It was I think he'd been out of jail for a year or two years or something like that. It was in, in Oakland, and it, there must have been hundreds of people there. And Jim, my partner, and I came into, the, into one of the rooms, and I, I saw Joe at the far end of, of, the, of this crowd. I don't even think he saw me. I might have waved. I might not have. And I said to Jim, I, I don't think we need to be here. He's, he's never going to see us. He never, it doesn't matter whether we hear another acolyte at his little, at his little altar. And so we left. Um, it, was, it was the end of the, you know, Graham Greene talks about the end of the affair. I loved when relationships end, how they end, that they end, that they're no longer needed. Uh, I just find that interesting.
Now, there's something I wanted to ask you specifically about is uh, most writers, when they write their stories, there's a story inside of them. Even if it's a memoir, it's a story inside that's struggling to get out, that's struggling to be heard. And then once that story's written down, most writers are done with it. You know, that's the stories on paper. It's been, or, or, the or, demon or has the, been exercised. Or they, or they, they get... They get trapped by the story, right? Um, I th- is, that, I think is, that so, what, is that what's happened with Joe? Is he gotten trapped in, in, by his in story? In some in some way, I'm interested in in what his new ambition is to to work in films and so forth. Uh, what I would see him doing on the internet over the years, he joined all these group of young people who get together and tell stories to each other, but the story he was telling was usually the same story. It was a story about the night that is that he. He, he 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 would call it patricide. The night that he tried, he cut his father with a knife, but that was to rescue his younger brother. Uh, something that he sort of floats over. I mean, nonetheless, you can only tell that story so many times before it begins to become clear to me, a listener, that he's trapped by the story. That this is the rhyme of the ancient mariner. That that he that the story now has caught him, and he can't get out of it. Do you know what I'm saying? That there are there are there are stories that will not let you go. So yes, you tell the story, and you think, oh, I'm free of the story. But you're not free of the story because the story is not free of you. You know, and and um, so you read these these writers, uh, usually not very confident writers, who have written twelve novels, and it turns out that they've written the same story over and over and over. Um, and they can't get out of it. And sometimes they, they'll write it as nonfiction, and then they'll write it as a novel, or they'll write it as a play, or they'll write it as a poem. And the ancient mariner keeps on his journey. You know, uh, it doesn't. It's it's very tricky to have a story that compelling. It's very tricky. And uh, I hope for Joe, because he's become such an interesting father. That achievement of the criminal, who was the outsider to family. Uh, to to the family man is really quite amazing, it seems to me, and a great, great achievement of his. Uh, I wouldn't want to embarrass him by saying it, in it to his face, but I would say it to you, the stranger's face. Um, that's not bad for the criminal. Um, he always would say to me that, um, you know, those first months of freedom were the trickiest uh, because you're sort of not prepared for uh, the difficulties that you and I tolerate. He was living with his brother, as I say, and he tells me this story, um, that the woman downstairs in the apartment house had taken his laundry, uh, still wet, out of the washer and put it on top of the washer while she she took her clothing and put it in the washing machine. He comes back into the uh, the, the laundromat and sees his pile of clothes dripping and it's at that moment that he realizes that he could go tumbling down again. Um, it's not going to be a great moment. It's not going to be, you know, a Miltonic moment where you 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 sin against God. It's this it's this daily annoyance that set that could set him off. And it's at that moment I think he realizes that if he if he does something about this wet laundry, he will go back to jail. Uh, because there's no telling what he would do about the wet laundry. 
that he chooses not to is his decision to be free. You've, you've said that there's a reason that convicts are called cons. Yes. Do you think Joe is still conning people? I think so. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know, a, a theatrical con issue. I get, I get on a stage and I make you cry. And then I go off stage and I... I drink the champagne in the in the dressing room. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a con, you know. So um, no more so be, than we're all cons. It's to some degree. Well, I, I I write the introduction to his Joe's memoir, a book, by the way, um, for all of this this tutorship that he claims that I that he has with me. He never he never asked me about a chapter of that book. He never. I would have I would have argued for a very different book. I would have argued for a book about his prison life. Uh, instead, it's really a, a book that barely touches his prison life. So he never asked me about this book, but he asked me if I would write the preface of the book. I didn't want to, and I think to myself, it's, it's, you know, I, what am I doing? It's like being on this podcast. What, what are we all doing? We're still in this, in this, this drama of talking about Joe Loya. So anyway, I write this piece, which I rather like. It's a piece called Parole. But I asked the reader, and I asked myself at the end of that essay, which Joe has read, I still don't know whether he was a con. And I don't know whether he conned me. Um, I don't particularly care, but I don't know whether he conned me um, and whether he was what he said he was at, at all stages. Um, that's, not, that's not a bad thing to wonder about sometimes at three in the morning, uh, how well you know another person, whether you are part of their their fiction, or whether they reveal something to you that was not fictional, that they never revealed to anybody else. Those are, those are really interesting questions to ask. There are no answers to that, and I do not answer that question, the question that I pose to the reader the, as I hand them the book. I don't know whether this book is true. It is what it is. And um, I don't know who this man is, but he was for a time a very interesting person to listen to. In a way, don't we all just become the stories that we tell about ourselves? To some degree, yes. And then somebody comes along, usually a younger sister, and says, that didn't happen at all. <laughs> 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 That's, you have it all wrong. <laughs> they that, was, that wasn't what Dad said. It wasn't what Dad intended, certainly. I don't know where you got that impression, you know. I was there, she'll say, uh, but that wasn't my story. <laughs> No, the person you should talk to, of course, is Joe's brother, who who ends up, in a, you know, in 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 church going ways and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you can't you can't know the power of fiction without without wondering about the the the, the drama of lying. You know, um, it's a very interesting thing. Sometimes I can only tell you the truth. I murdered that man that night. And I can only tell you about it now because no one will ever find his body, you know. I can't, in the, in the, in, in the acting of that, if I can act, um, if I can become uh, Macbeth, you know, I've already imagined what it is like to kill. I've already, that's, that's, that's the power of the actor, you know. Um, Joe has that power. I wish he were, I wish he were an actor. I wish he were in somebody's play right now um, because I think he could be a really interesting villain um, though he's always the he's always writing himself as a hero in his stories and that's less interesting to me hmm. 
Um, I've gone through my list of questions. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Oh, I don't know. I I, I guess I'll think of things later. <laughs> I, 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 the, the the sexual drama of the gay man writing, listening, reading these letters is you're too polite to ask about it. Um, and I certainly I. I remember telling uh, television producers I was working with in those days about this correspondence. And um, Mike asked me, he said, are you in love with this man? And I said, I don't think so. He said, it sounds like it. He said, these, these letters that you exchange, it sounds like this guy is writing letters from prison that prisoners wrote, write to lonely women, you know. Um, and I, 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 I've always entertained that possibility that I may have fallen in love with Joe. Um, I don't think so, but I don't, I don't know either. I never went to see him when he was in prison. He would send me photographs of himself. Um, you're going to hear this like, a, like good evangelical Protestants in Orange County. You're going to say, oh, you're saying something so negative about this guy that he, well, he uses people. He didn't use me. He, he engaged me. I... I bought the ticket and I went to the play and I enjoyed the play and I learned a great deal and I stole a great deal. Um, it's, a, it's, an intricate, it's an intricate drama. I would advise your listeners to this podcast, whatever podcast is, not to trust my story. Um, that everything is so partial, everything, by which I don't mean complete. That a life is so many, so many fragments, so many chapters. Um, the witness to a single chapter is, is what to be relied upon. I don't think so. Um, the, the the complete chapter, all the chapters together, is that the complete story? One night I did something that was so unpredictable, so out of the ordinary, that I would never do it again. Does that moment undo the rest of the narrative? Possibly, or does that not, that moment belong? alongside the rest of the narrative. Do you know what I'm saying to you? That's, that drama is never, is, is, that answer, that argument is never completely uh, solved by Joe Laurie's life. Do, don't listen to any one of these stories, um, but listen to any one of the stories and realize that all of the stories could be undone by that one. What do you think listeners to this podcast should get from Joe's story? I have no idea. I remember being introduced the other one night in in um, New Mexico by this young man who was a linguist, and I, you know, I've been I've been introduced to many audiences in many places over the years, and I've heard all kinds of introductions. And uh, this kid was so smart, Mexican uh, Mexican American, and he tells this gives his introduction to to my speech that's better than my speech. It is so magnificent. And I barely knew how, after, at the, at the dinner afterwards, how to tell him that he had told me so much about my life that I didn't know. Well, a year later, I find out that he's been murdered. He and his girlfriend uh, were, uh, were, were trailed by her ex-boyfriend who murdered them in bed and put the gun in, in the young man's, the, the, the professor's hand to make it look like he had murdered his, his girlfriend. And I think to myself, I don't know anything about this world. Everything is a mystery to me. 
The moment is a mystery and everything can be undone or everything can be predicted in a mystery. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, wow. Um, well, you know, one one last thing. Could I have you introduce yourself to people who might not know you? Oh, that's mostly since people to people don't read. Nobody knows me. I I just did a piece about walking down in my neighborhood. You know, when you're when you get to be seventy five years old, with relatively strong legs, I go up and down the hills like this little billy goat. But um, by and large, my freedom now is to walk down Fillmore Street and have no one see me. You, I've disappeared. Women tell me, of course, that they've been doing that for years. They're 40 years old and people stop looking at them on the street. Uh, well, I, 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 I don't know what it is like to be a writer anymore um, because I, I live in a city that doesn't read. Um, once in a while, I'll, I'll see somebody uh, 30, 40 years old with a, with a book under her arm. Um, but by and large, everyone is looking at that little screen. I had no idea what they were seeing at that little screen. Um, so that I can I can introduce myself as anything because they wouldn't know the difference. I can say that I won the Orange Bowl in 1972 on a spectacular run. I can say that I won the lotto and I I made more money one day with one stupid ticket, and I made 250 million dollars, and I wasted it all. And it was the worst day of my life, this day I won the lotto. I can say to these people, um, because they have no idea who I am, this little Mexican man who's getting smaller and smaller as the years go on, that I've written uh, a, a books that have been helpful to people, but those people now are gone. And um, the people whose books I used to treasure are gone now too. And so um, I'm as invisible as this voice is, as it trails off. Um, wow. Well, I remember reading your books, and I'm still very affected by them. So we haven't <laughs> all quite we haven't quite all died yet. That <laughs> well, be careful when you cross the street. Look both ways, because <laughs> I'm counting. You? I'm counting on you. <laughs> could you tell me your name, though? Oh, my name. Mm -hmm. um, Pete Buttigieg. I'm running for president. <laughs> <laughs> Call me Pedro. You really don't want to say your name, do you? No. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. I hope Joe doesn't kill us. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, I'll too. I think I'm more in danger. Me, I think I'm more in danger his, than anyone give me else your at this address. Point. I'll send them to you. <laughs> you will hear about this interview. One of his little <laughs> acolytes will call you and say, Joe Maya, hear about this interview. <laughs> Screw them. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, that was Richard Rodriguez. If you don't know him, uh, again, he's the author of Days of Obligation and Hunger of Memory and many amazing essays and video essays. Totally worth it for you to Google him and then read and watch just as much as you can. Especially now, I mean, what else are you going to do? Okay, this is The Score. 
from Western Sound and ACAST Studios. We'll be back with another bonus episode in a few weeks, and it's going to be a real behind-the-scenes thing about all the amazing music and sound design that went into making the show. I hope you'll stay tuned. Talk soon. <laughs>